he would go AWOL for a brief period during this time of life. So could you tell us about that and how he would come to meet the Austrian royal family during this time and finally complete his metamorphosis from Hermann Steinschneider to Eric Jan Hanussen? Yeah, so Hanussen sneakily came up with this scheme where he correctly determined that he could escort this group of Czech POWs, if I remember correctly, to a internment camp or a military prison that was awaiting them. And he was going to do this in two weeks' time, fulfilling the letter of the law of these orders that he'd received, save for the fact that he'd actually been allotted a month to deliver the men via boxcar. So, always thick as thieves, Hanussen managed to win over his subjects, who he was delivering to hard labor, getting them to agree with the plan and always stay where they were supposed to, while he would disappear to perform his mentalism and uh, telepathic routines and flirt with uh, young women uh, along the way and the like. In return, the men received perks like the booze that Hanusin would furnish them with and you know uh, the opportunity to just uh, play cards and, and have like the easiest um, captor ever. Uh, and let's see, where was I? Um, oh, this is funny. At one point, they evidently pawned his rifle while drinking and playing poker, but Hanusin was more than satisfied with the arrangement. So, uh, as he managed to deliver them and then escape military service, on unsanctioned leave for a total of two weeks, during which he returned to Vienna and set about performing again. Hanussen's temporary AWOL led to him performing in a concert house for some of the Austrian royal family. And this was actually the first instance where he donned the moniker Eric Jan Hanussen. Um, this came about because he encountered uh, one of a long uh, litany of different impresarios that uh, Hanussen would collaborate with throughout his career. This particular individual was named Pepe, I believe. Uh, I think I've got that right. And um, he had already booked this concert house. Uh, in Vienna, and ticket sales were uh, subpar, and so he and Hanussen got to talking, and um, once he learned that Hanussen was this, uh, you know, this this growing, uh, slowly metamorphosing um, a magician and mentalist whose, whose star was in the ascendant, uh, he... He decided to loop him in uh, and, and in fact, make him the headliner act, if I remember correctly. And this performance, in turn, won him enough favor 
with members of the uh, Austro-Hungarian royal family that he ended up getting transferred to a military performing unit slash battalion. It wasn't totally smooth sailing because um, uh, either an aide or a member of the military was highly suspicious of this Eric Jan Hanusin character, and um, they, they started digging into his background and they discerned that he was actually, uh, you know, this, this Jewish guy, not this Danish aristocrat that he had started to present himself as. And then they fed that information to the royal family. But members of the royal family were still so smitten with Hanusin that they overlooked this deception. And although they didn't like outright push for his uh, transfer or release, they did agree to give his uh, impresario Pepe um, permission to speak on their behalf and say that the royal family would be very pleased if Hanusin uh, was sent to a different station. So that's how that um, that came about. So something that I thought was really interesting that you taught me about through your notes, I had no idea about this, was the connection between Hanusin and Sigmund Freud's heir, Paul Schilder, as well as the thread that connects Hanusin to some of the early American hypnosis theorists. And so what was the Institute for Breath Therapy and Physical Healing, and what was Hanusin's involvement with both this group and some of the um, early hypnosis theorists? I'm going to go ahead and just read a quote from the Mel Gordon book here that references the Institute for Breath Therapy. And maybe we can return to uh, this a little later if there isn't quite enough information here. Um, I also need to verify myself whether this is the same uh, the same institute as that there there are also references to a spittle gossa or spittle gas um, nerve clinic where Hanusin was practicing hypnosis. And initially, I was under the impression that uh, they were the same thing. But just listener, be aware that um, Luke and I need to confirm that uh, because I'm not 100% positive. But Hanusin was definitely practicing um, hypnosis and hypnotherapy, which is fascinating. So this is from a segment or a section called Freud's Vienna, uh, which states, quote, On his free days, Hanusin studied and practiced at a Viennese medical clinic, the Institute for Breath Therapy and Physical Healing Techniques, under Max Ostermann's expert tutelage. The showman headed the Institute's hypnotic unit and would soon branch out to found his own school of hypnosis and the occult arts. Hanusin's students came from all walks of life. One group consisted of a manufacturer, an actor, an attorney, a physician, and a factory laborer. 
Altogether, 14 of them were introduced on the Apollo stage where, uh, where were duplicated the quote-unquote parapsychological experiments of their master. Hanussen also demonstrated his system of absolute telepathy at the League of Viennese Physicians. In the auditorium of Vienna University, Dr. Alexander Pilch, a respected professor of neurology and indefatigable researcher in quote-unquote borderline science, designed a rigorously uh, controlled experiment to test the telepath's claims. In an adjoining room, Hanussen was to guess four digits drawn on the lecture hall blackboard. Eric got two numbers of four numbers right. The odds of such an occurrence happening at random were exactly 20 to 1. In a statistically unlikely aside, uh, Pilch or Pilks reported that his test case, a non-clairvoyant doctor, uh, also guessed two of the numbers correctly. So there's that, which I find uh, really fascinating. So the fact that Hanussen was actually practicing hypnotism at this medical clinic. So while reading through Mel Gordon's Eric Jan Hanussen, Hitler's Jewish clairvoyant, I just found a passage that connects Hanussen to some of these earlier American hypnosis theorists that I've been looking into on PPM. So evidently in 1914-15, Hanussen learned muscle reading from the uh, experimental psychologist Joe Libero. As we know, uh, Hanussen approached him at the time and offered him a couple hundred Cronin to basically expose a rival stage magician that Hanussen was vying against, who was named Rubini. Um, we already referenced this, who was touring Vienna, very popular telepathy act, um, and his entire act was primarily built on muscle reading. Anyways, Hanussen paid this experimental psychologist to expose the methods Rubini was using, and then convinced Libero to teach him said techniques with assurances that he only wanted to know for journalistic purposes. Of course, Hanussen would go on to incorporate muscle reading into his stage magic acts in Berlin, so he outright lied. According to Gordon, muscle reading is a phrase coined by the neurologist Dr. George Miller Beard in 1874. American clinicians and psychologists had been attempting to account for the remarkable, purportedly telepathic demonstrations of the Missouri showman, Jacob Randall Brown, and it was the Connecticutter beard that finally cracked the code. Speaking of beard, he's best remembered for having defined neurasthenia, the nervous condition that was believed to have been caused by the stresses of urbanization and life in the city, which in the late 19th century was a wholly new and 
novel symptomatic outcropping that would later serve as a touchpoint for doctors seeking to understand war neuroses during World War I. If I remember correctly, further illustrating the ways in which cutting-edge psychology, spiritualism, and hypnotherapy were all bound up together. Beard was also directly involved in the formulation of electroshock as a therapy. So that's also very interesting. Furthermore, this Jacob Randall Brown charlatan, who appears to have been a major progenitor of these muscle-reading psychometry, graphology, etc. practices that would indelibly influence stage magic and criminology in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, also directly inspired William James's objective psychology. These uh, antique quackery lie detector machines that sought to practically implement these ideas. So I also find that fascinating as James was another one of these major proponents of hypnotherapy and faculty at Harvard and an exemplar of Massachusetts, which is a special focus of uh, parapower mapping. So we can see how Hanussen's stage magic routines were not only directly inspired by these figures, but at the intersection of these curiously intertwined historical threads. Furthermore, he was actually a subject for one of Sigmund Freud's most promising pupils while working as a performer in Vienna. So there are psychoanalysis connections present too. I guess these lessons from Libero were crucial in this formative period of Hanussen's stage magic and mentalist development. According to Gordon, Libero taught Hanussen not only the muscle reading, but also, quote, telepathy without bodily contact, end quote, where you basically have to visually perceive the minute bodily cues that give away where the person has hidden an, an object, for example. He also taught Hanussen pseudo-telepathy, or echolalia, where the magician's assistant uses a system of code words to communicate the object that the blindfolded magician is supposed to perceive. As for Freud and Hanussen, I believe I've come across two references to them having potentially met. In Gordon's book, he cites an account from a woman named Geza von Sivra, uh, probably butchering her name, and she claimed to have seen Hanussen's diaries from right around his successful exorcism of a milkmaid in the old Frankist village of Prosnitz his spiritual home. According to Geza, Hanussen and Freud met in Prague and shared a late-night dinner in a hotel, during which they discussed the efficacy of hypnosis. Gordon calls this Hanussenia and dismisses it as apocryphal, and 
judging from the fact that he's generally quicker to believe Hanusin than Magida, from what I can tell, it seems fairly likely that the story is embellished or possibly uh, fabricated from whole cloth. That said, whether the two literally met in the flesh or not, they were definitely connected. As you mentioned, Luke, Freud's heir apparent, Paul Schilder, examined Hanussen in his university laboratory and was evidently impressed enough by Hanussen's purported telepathic abilities that he wrote up the experiment, deeming it worthy of future study. I admittedly don't find it very impressive, especially if they were sitting across from each other at a table. In which case, I gotta say, Schilder wasn't a very creative dude. Um, because, yeah, evidently Hanusin correctly ascertained that Schilder was thinking of a five-legged round table, and he drew it. Then again, psychoanalysts and researchers are corruptible people, too, so who's to say that Hanusin's lifelong practice of bribery didn't apply in this uh, case as well. Yeah, that's uh, certainly a possibility with the bribery. And it's also, I guess, I mean, could just be a little bit humorous to think that uh, Schilder is, you know, every bit as uh, what would you describe it? Um, you know, it, it'd be funny for a psychoanalyst to be susceptible to trickery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I don't think that we can have this conversation without going into Hanusin's time as a psychic detective of sorts, which is, I mean, just too interesting. I mean, it's literally something out of a movie or something. So perhaps we should start off this conversation with the Austro-Hungarian state bake printing theft. So this is an anecdote that... I already briefly mentioned in a previous PPM episode, so apologies to any of my listeners that might be tuning in for the retread, um, but pulling from Mel Gordon's Eric Jan Hanusen, uh, Hanusen was enlisted in solving the theft of some hundreds of thousands of Kronen bills from the Austro-Hungarian state bank in Vienna. One thing I failed to mention before um, was the implications of the crime, this being in the early years of the first Austrian Republic following the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire post-World War I. Austrian currency was in a precarious position, so the fact that hundreds of thousands of bills were disappearing was really raising the alarm and a concern for the nascent country's economy. According to the, the tale, I guess the bank's directors were pissed at Viennese police's apparent disinterest in catching the culprits, so they enlisted uh, Hanusin, and Hanusin brought a camera, a dowsing rod, and his African assistant with him when he visited the bank's mint and obviously tried to make a media day out of it. 
Hanusin's ability to uh, ascertain the culprit of a crime is probably uh, attributable to impressive observation skills, which he'd then play off as clairvoyance. In this case, he determined it had to be an inside job. Either that, or he once again had insider or prior knowledge, as was often suspected throughout his turbulent career. It's highly likely that, at least in some instances, Hanusin was actually directly involved in the planning and carrying out of crimes. According to contemporary accounts, his prediction was immediately borne out when an employee was caught in the building with a ton of bills stuffed in his coat. Hanusin and the Vienna police immediately started warring in the papers, trying to respectively claim credit and discredit the other. It's uh, also a fascinating story as the Viennese police so chafed against his manipulation, his being Eric, uh, of the media frenzy and denouncements of their incompetence that the police commissioner outlawed stage hypnotism in the city in response. Remember this anecdote when we talk Dr. Mabusa. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely crazy. And another one of my favorite anecdotes from Hanusen's time as a psychic detective of sorts was when he would put his skills to the test by looking into the serial killer Peter Curtin, otherwise known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. So could you tell us about that and just some of the other stories of Hanusin um, foray into being a psychic detective? Definitely. Yeah, there's another one where Hanusin was involved in solving a case of uh, Grand Theft Auto. And if I can remember correctly, it's one instance where he was suspected of playing a role in the plot. This led to one of Hanusin's early court appearances and cross-examination of his purported uh, paranormal abilities. A recurrence in Hanusin's short life that also makes it into Werner Herzog's um, Invincible, the, uh, the semi-fictional film about Hanusin and the Jewish strongman Zisha uh, Breitbart, who um, Hanusin would try to Aryanize, which is a, it's an interesting movie. I mean, aspects of it are really fascinating and, um, of course, well-made, um, though I will say that I am not a fan of the dialogue in places. It's like very stilted and weird. And also, for whatever reason, Werner decided to make the film in English, too. Yeah, it's it's an interesting film. I don't Have you seen it, Lou? I haven't. I was actually going to plan on watching it tomorrow. So when we get back to um, this in our second conversation we'll have together, I will give you my opinions on Invincible because I have been wanting to watch it. I've just been trying to play catch up so much that that's kind of how I've been using my free time. 
Yeah, and maybe we can just revisit. You can cut this and we can revisit it then in the uh, next part. One of the most fascinating and blood-curdling of Hanusin's criminal telepathy anecdotes has to be the fact that he figured into the case of the quote-unquote vampire of Dusseldorf. Throughout 1929 and into early 1930, Dusseldorf was enduring a reign of terror and brutality uh, of the most extreme. We're talking about a prototypical serial killer and one at the levels of Jeffrey Dahmer in both the number of victims and the sadism involved. The identity of the vampire was one Peter Curtin, a man in his late 40s who was raised by abusive alcoholic parents who frankly sound like they were the worst. Born six years before Hanusin, Curtin was one of 13 children, two of who died in infancy. Trigger warning, but evidently Curtin's father used to line up his kids and then force his wife to strip naked and have sex with her while they were all watching. So just terribly depraved. He would also beat them repeatedly. And he evidently especially uh, meted out punishment and uh, really just torture on his son, uh, Peter Curtin. These early traumas obviously played a major role in the development of Curtin's sadism and apparent mental illness. Curtin would later confess that, at the age of nine, he drowned two school-aged friends, deaths at the time that were ruled accidental. As an adolescent, his insatiable sexual appetite led him to practicing bestiality and, trigger warning again, developing this habit of slitting the throats of the animals he would have sex with while orgasming. Makes really me think gross. of Alistair Crowley and the Abbey of <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of wild. All of the, the wasn't it chicken carcasses stuffed into a, uh, no, bloody ties, bloody ties stuffed into a tree trunk. Do you know this anecdote? Crowley evidently stuffed a ton of bloody ties into a tree trunk near the Abbey of Thelema, and he took the wife of one of his acolytes who he was smitten with. Um, this woman was like uh, a a prostitute from London and a cabaret singer as well, I think, actually, who, uh, funnily enough, was also suspected of having like killed at least one previous husband and potentially murdered others. And Crowley took this woman uh, to this tree trunk, showed her all these bloody ties that potentially had been dipped in like blood from animals that had been ritualistically killed or something. I, I'm not entirely certain. I, I'm going off of memory here. But he told the woman that that the ties were Jack the Rippers, which <laughs> which I just find yeah I just find so crazy. H had you heard this before, Luke? 
No, I, I hadn't. What that made me think of was the story of uh, Crowley trying to get a goat to copulate with one of his like scarlet women or something like that at the right. Abbey of Philema. And I don't think that they could make it happen, but the plan was to get the goat to bring her to climax and slit its throat at the peak of it, you know, to get the most energy possible out of the, the magical working or something. And so it's kind of funny that you could see a similarity between this, you know, uh, ritual purportedly done by Crowley and just a depraved serial killer's, you know, kind of uh, instincts or or something like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There are so many depraved stories from that period uh, in Italy um, of the Abbey of Philema. But I think uh, the reason I was thinking of uh, this particular story about the bloody ties in the tree trunk is because he referenced Jack the Ripper and the vampire of Dusseldorf was frequently like uh, referred to as like the German um, Jack the Ripper as well. Uh, and, Very and then, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to I'll have to find that and share it with you too because I'm pretty sure there is a component of uh, like animals getting uh, ritualistically killed. Um, and that's like where he was getting the blood <laughs> that he was soaking these ties in for whatever reason. Um, yeah, we could do, yeah, we could go off on Crowley, uh, and that, and that time. Um, but, uh, do you have anything else you want to say about that period? Uh, oh, no, no. I, I was just getting us off on a, on a rabbit trail, but let's just go ahead and get back to, uh, Peter Curtin. Okay. So he was practice. he was practicing bestiality. And uh, he had this habit of slitting throats of animals, so this kind of paraphilia. And um, throughout his adult life, he was in and out of penal colonies, and his rap sheet was long and varied, of course. It's also interesting to note that he served in the Imperial German Army in 1904, although he deserted. The first murder that was definitively linked to Curtin was the strangling of a nine-year-old girl that he discovered asleep in a bed um, in a house he was burglarizing. This was in 1913. This led to Curtin slashing her throat and satiating his gruesome paraphilia. Interestingly, he evidently returned to a tavern across from the scene of the crime, exhibiting that archetypal behavior of serial killers that's now well known, until he was later brought in for the Vampire of Dusseldorf killings. He managed to avoid having this and another attempted murder around the same time tied to him. As for the actual vampire of Dusseldorf killings, the official count, at least according to Wikipedia, is that Curtin was stuck with nine plus counts of murder and 31 plus counts of attempted murder. During this half year or so, per Gordon, 79 people had been viciously wounded by a scissors or hammer-wielding maniac, and at least 11 had died. A few of these were surely copycats or unrelated incidents that 
got lumped in with the Syrian mortars uh, litany of victims in the media frenzy, or at least I'd assume. The defining characteristic of the murders and the nickname that the media ran with was the occasional discovery of literal puncture marks on victims' necks and other evidence that the killer, i.e. Curtin, was attempting to drink blood. Apparently, Curtin's paraphilia literally grew to sucking blood, so <laughs> that's fucking crazy. We need to move on, but another thing that's fascinating is that Ernst Gennot, the head of Berlin's homicide department, determined that the vampire was a single killer through graphological analysis of two notes that had been sent in, one to the police and the other to a communist newspaper, which divulged the location of the bodies of two victims. Now, I have like this sneaking suspicion, and I don't have any evidence to back it up, but I wonder about uh, the fact that a communist newspaper was chosen, uh, the, the newspaper that the vampire of Dusseldorf um, chose to give one of these letters and clues to a body was a communist paper. I just, I, I find that a little suspicious. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that is perplexing, especially because you wouldn't expect it to be the, uh, biggest outlet or the outlet most likely to uh you know publish stuff related to that so i'm i'm not sure i don't know what the uh possible motive would be in doing that but it definitely is something that uh makes you scratch your head and wonder why i guess my hunch or my wonderment is whether there's a possibility that that body had already been discovered and that for PSYOP and propaganda purposes, uh, a letter was sent in to divulge um, its location to a communist paper to try and like tie uh, communist elements in Weimar, Dusseldorf, and Germany at the time to the vampire of Dusseldorf, um, or to make him appear like a communist sympathizer. Like I have no evidence to back it up. I haven't, I haven't done my due diligence and looked into it and maybe this is something you'll want to cut but i've just like i just wonder about that a little bit and you know there there are instances of that kind of thing as we'll see with the reichstag fire right like that is a prime uh example of fascist nazi elements within uh germany at the time doing that kind of thing i don't know it's a half-formed thought but i just thought i'd throw it out there so I'd referenced Ernst Gennot, a.k.a. the Buddha, who was this famous homicide inspector, and he was actually the head of the Berlin Homicide Department, who totally revolutionized um, forensic science and uh, yeah, was a major innovator when it came to criminal investigation. And his connection to the Vampire of Dusseldorf case is wild because of his revolutionary um, uses of forensics, as I just mentioned, but also the fact that he coined the phrase serial killer, not the guy from Mindhunter <laughs> who's, who's tried to uh, 
who's seemingly like positioned himself as the the person that coined that phrase, at least in English. I, I think I'm right. Uh, have you seen that show? You know, yes, Mind I Hunter. Have. Yes, I have. Okay, didn't that guy uh, like basically claim to have? coined the phrase serial killer or they present it in that way in that show i believe so and the guy who wrote that book that the show's based off which i believe is also called mind hunter is just so full of shit i think jimmy fallon gong (laughs) has done um an episode or two in his program to kill series on that guy i can't it's john something but yeah that guy's uh he's a piece of work word yeah i need to go back and listen to those episodes i'm not sure i actually have Thanks for reminding me. So anyways, Ernst Gennot came up with the phrase Syrian mortar, uh, probably mispronouncing it, but um, he was the first to uh, coin the phrase serial killer, um, except in German. Let's see. Furthermore, he's the inspiration for the character Inspector Lohmann in Fritz Lang's Noirs, who appears in both M which was directly inspired by the vampire of Dusseldorf and the testament of Dr. Mabusa. So two of Lang's most legendary noirs allude to Eric Jan Hanussen, Ernst Gennot, and the vampire. As for Eric's involvement in the investigation, he joined a massive fray of soothsayers and psychics, estimated to be as large as 500 strong, who were seeking to solve the murder and claim the 15,000 francs that were being offered in reward money. Another way in which the vampire case prefigures so many serial killer tropes is the fact that he left, at least by one estimate, 2,000 notes and clues for the investigators and journalists in this positively Seven-esque fashion. I guess Hanussen was a little late to the party, as the Dusseldorf PD declined his overtures and offerings of help as they'd grown frustrated with the fracas. He still sought to manipulate the case that had the newspaper readers of the Weimar Republic enraptured. He first released a series of, if I remember correctly, 24 of the killer's characteristics that he'd reportedly ascertained via telepathic means, more likely deduction, guesswork, and possibly bribes. He also began to threaten the vampire, writing in letters that, if he didn't turn himself in, he would reveal his identity. It appears that a decent number of Hanussen's speculations about Curtin were way wide of the mark, but some of them were close enough to the truth that it didn't do any lasting damage to his credibility. The vampire was finally ferreted out by Gennot after he foolishly told his address to a rape victim that he didn't kill. 
This, in turn, led him to finally confess to the murders to his wife, who uh, then entreated him to turn himself in. In 1931, he was executed by guillotine, uh, which they still did back then. It is interesting to note that it seems his confession was consistent with the period at which Hanusin was publishing open letters to the killer, threatening him to turn himself in or else face the consequences, so on and so forth. Uh, while I don't know nearly enough about the vampire of Dusseldorf case to warrant this, I can't help but wonder whether there was any hidden proto-MCade dimension to the case. As previously mentioned, Curtin was a German soldier. He served in the 98th Infantry in Metz, where he later deserted. Because of this, he was brought before a military tribunal on counts of desertion, arsonry, and robbery. Fascinatingly, there does appear to be a connection between his military incarceration and later serial murders, as Curtin later claimed that during his imprisonment in Munster from 1905 to 1913, he was constantly in solitary confinement and that his exposure to corporal punishment fueled his malignant fantasies of violent rape and murder and the like. So you make of that what you will. Yeah, all all very interesting. And it's just so funny how Hanusen, you know, finds a way to, you know, even appear in that story, even if only as a bit of a footnote, but certainly very interesting. You mentioned Babylon Berlin, as well as some Fritz Lang noir films like Dr. Mabuse, The Gambler, and The Testament of Dr. Mabuse.